Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Minil Bopaya about her recent book, Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. Bopaya, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, John. Yeah, it is a pleasure to be with you. I'm super excited for our conversation today. We're going to be exploring your book, Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. And first and foremost, I think there's often a misunderstanding about what equity means, uh, how it connects with um, uh, other related terms and what role it plays in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space. Uh, and of course, in your book, you get into how this is so important for organizations and how, as leaders, we can be proactive about creating a really psychologically safe and and truly authentically inclusive space uh, and culture where people can have the opportunity to, to be their best selves, bring their whole authentic selves to work, contribute in meaningful ways. Uh, and really have a sense of belonging. So I'm, I mean, this has never been more important. I'm super excited to have the conversation. As we get started, I wanted to share Minnell's bio with everybody. Minnell Bopaya is the author of Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. She is the founder of Brevity and Wit, a strategy plus design firm that combines human-centered design, behavior change science, and the principles of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility to help organizations transform themselves and the world. Bupaya has written for the Standard Social Innovation Review and The Hill and has been featured as a guest on numerous podcasts and shows, including the Kojo Namdi show on WAMU. She has also been a keynote speaker for many conferences, inspiring thousands with her incredible, authentic, and energizing and engaging talks. Again, it's a pleasure to be with you. Anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of your background and personal context before we dive on in further? Um, that seems like quite a lot. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> well, it, it's, it is wonderful. You, you're doing really great and very important work. Um, and let me start by asking you how you got into this space. Uh, what is it about the, the DE&I space that uh, really spoke to you and, and why did you write this book? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I came into it fairly recently, uh, just about you know five or six years ago. And I had spent most of my career, you know, I had a, uh, I have a bachelor's in English and a master's in psych. And so I bounced around between journalism and publishing and marketing. Um, and I, when I was getting my degree in psychology, I was also working for Sesame Workshop and I got to see how they use social science research to inform their programming and how powerful the media can be for changing the way like a generation thinks about things. But, um, in all of that work, when I was bouncing around, I worked for a number of nonprofits, 
when I finally got a marketing position in DEI, I felt like I had come home because I felt like, oh, this is the thing I could talk about for the rest of my life. And the reason was probably because, you know, I grew up uh, on Staten Island in New York and being a clever, sensitive brown girl there was a unique experience. And I just, I grew up with this sense that the world just wasn't rooting for me, but I had no language for it. And diversity was always important to me. I remember writing high school essays about it. Uh, and it was always something I talked about. And it was really when I landed in the DEI space that I was like, oh, here's the thing that I've always been passionate about. And here's a way to make a profession out of it um, and to do some good in the world. So it was just a natural fit. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think that that tends to happen with us over time. We, If we're open to it and willing to adapt and to change that we can find ourselves landing in these places that are, are mo that most resonate with us, where we're most passionate, where we can have the biggest impact. So I'm wonderful that's happened for you. And I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that you've been able to have this kind of a contribution uh, to such an important issue in such a, uh, an important space. Now you start with the, the word equity in your title, followed by the subtitle, how to design organizations where everyone thrives. Maybe tell us a little bit more specifically about equity um, how equity may be different uh, than some people commonly kind of think of it. Yeah, yeah. So I joke that you know equity is often the middle child in DEI, the idea we all skip over to get to the warm and fuzzy feelings of inclusion. Uh, and and it's a it's you know it is a concept that is a bit more abstract maybe because it's not based on feelings. Uh, equity is fundamentally about fairness. And in the DEI space, it's about creating a more fair system. And by fairness, we mean that um, everyone has equal access to opportunity, right? That we don't hold differences as liabilities. Yeah, and let me, let me just double click on that for a second because don't we don't we have equal opportunity in the United States? Don't we have laws that protect that? And we we put on every job posting. We always say we're an equal opportunity employer. So why worry about equity if we already have it? Yeah, yeah. Um, we say that we don't have it. That's and right. So <laughs> that, that is the gap, and I think that's what equity is the mechanism by which we can reify our values. Um, because it is inherently an American value and, and a worldwide value that we are all equal and that we have e that we should have equal rights. And yet what equity is saying is that in order to safeguard that right, we need different resources according to our individual differences. So we can say that we all have an equal right to vote, but if a polling station is not wheelchair accessible, then someone in a wheelchair does not have access to that right. So we need to create a building that can allow for someone who uses a wheelchair to gain access unimpeded. And so it's the same thing. If we say that you know we have equal access to vote, but people in certain neighborhoods are able to just drive 20 minutes to their local school and other people have to drive three hours and stand in line and the poll closes, is only open from nine to five, but for the other stations, so from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., so people can vote when they're not at work, then that is not equal access to our to exercise our equal right to vote. So we need equitable access, which ensures that polling stations um, are able to be open and accessible according to the differences 
that people have, whether it's by physical ability, whether it's by the fact that they're working jobs that are not nine to five, whether it's by the fact that they don't have access to a car, all of those things. So equity ensures equal rights. Yeah, I really like that definition and, and explanation. I think that's super helpful um, because I, again, I think especially those who are come from privileged backgrounds, it's very easy to dismiss this saying, we, we're already there. We have laws mm -hmm. that protect yeah. people. We have, you know, we have, um, and in fact, you know, often I'm working with organizations where, you know, there's a certain substantial portion of, of the, the workforce mm -hmm. in that organization that believe that this is just a waste of everyone's energy and time. Um, but you know what, when, when you really drill down and see who are the people that have that attitude, it almost always is going to be like white guys like me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not the women, it's not the people of color, it's not people uh, from other marginalized or dis disenfranchised or disadvantaged populations, because they live it every day. They know exactly what it means to not have equal access. So we might say all the right things. We might even have laws that are supposed to protect um, you know, equality and, and mm -hmm. provide equity. But in practice, that doesn't always play out. And it's not the lived experience of, of so many people that come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And so, so part of this is just a call for, you know, I, as a cis, straight, yeah. middle-aged white dude, I need to recognize that I'm, you know, I have all sorts of privilege and I have all sorts of things that I just take for granted each and every day that I probably yeah. just don't even think about that are challenges um, for other people that they have to, to grapple with all the time. And, and so that just fundamentally shifts, you know, my perspective. And so I would invite anyone, this isn't like a slam on white guys, but it, yeah. it's just, it's just a, a reminder that we need to be really thoughtful and proactive about checking our biases, understanding our privilege and, and taking time to listen to yeah. the stories of those around us who might have a different experience. And when we can do that, we can develop more empathy and we can start to actually realize that yeah, the system's in place aren't equitable, they're not fair, they're not consistent um, in terms of providing that access that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, so what's interesting is that what I start to talk about, it's not simply um, understanding our privilege because honestly, almost everyone has some form of privilege, right? And I think what is more important, which is often, I think, where most people struggle, regardless, you know, probably white men, but also plenty of other identities, is in seeing the system. Because what we assume, what we love to assume is that the world is the way it is, because that's just how it naturally evolved. And that is not true. Almost everything in the world was designed by someone. So when we're talking about work, for example, the average workday and job was designed, especially knowledge work, was designed in the 1950s for a straight, white, able-bodied Christian male. So what does that mean? That means that like that person at that time used to be able to commute from the suburbs. Um, one income would allow to pay for a mortgage, putting your kids through college and retirement. And they would come home to a home-cooked meal and all of the housework and emotional and cognitive labor taking care for them for free and be able to work like 40 to 60 hours a week and manage all of that. 
almost no one has that life now, including most straight white cisgender male men. That's right. Yeah. So like the way we have designed work does not actually benefit straight men at all either. And there's a, there's a wonderful article in Harvard Business Review about this, about how the culture of overwork is impeding women's advancement, but it's also like emotionally shutting down men. Like men do not have, in order to succeed at work, they have to give up having relationships with their wives, with their children, with their families, with their community, which is so incredibly bad for them. Everything we know about physical health is now tied to our social connections. Loneliness is the biggest predictor of getting a heart attack. And yet we set men up for that day in and day out because we have designed work around a model that no longer exists. So what does that even mean when we're talking about like really small tactical things? What that means is then like, if you, if you wanna hire um, a salesperson, a sales guy in the 1950s, if he went on a sales call can go and expense food and alcohol as a legitimate business expense in order to get that job done. Now, we live in a different world where we wanna break into new markets and say we wanna break into a market of like moms um, or even like single moms. And so maybe it makes more sense to have someone with that lived experience to go make the pitch. What does a single mother need most in order to close that sale? I have no idea. <laughs> she needs childcare. Uh, yes. And yet we cannot, we can write off alcohol as a legitimate business expense, but we cannot write off childcare. And so when we talk about inequitable systems, that's what we're talking about, that it was designed to support men who have somebody who is taking care of their children. It was never designed to support a woman who is single trying to take care of her children and do her job. Yeah, that, that, that's a super insightful example. And the awareness of the systems, I completely agree. So whether or not we recognize our privilege, um, you know, I, I think many people don't, but even if you do, most, it's also, I share that, that perspective that it's, it's been my experience. Most people don't look at the world in terms of systems. Yeah. <laughs> they just don't. And, yeah. and so uh, they take it for granted that things are the way they are because that's just the way they're supposed to be. And we don't stop and question and we don't stop and challenge those assumptions or those norms. And there is no policy practice or procedure that exists in an organization that has to be that way. Um, yeah. I mean, th there's certain compliance with legal requirements and, and that can, uh, you know, impose some, some yeah. level of, of, of policy, but most of the things that we do in organizations are just a holdover from the past yeah. that may have served a particular purpose for a particular population within a certain context in the past, but does it work for us today? Uh, yeah. and, and very often that's just not the case. It does, it doesn't. Uh, service today. And, and you gave a great example, you know, it, it really it's, you know, if we talk about patriarchy and, and how patriarchy can be damaging to both men and women, um, you, you gave a good example of that. Uh, and, and so we just need to dismantle some of these, these norms and assumptions and, and be able to see it, but we're not trained to see it. And so yeah. if we, uh, so how do we, how do we start to do that? How do we, how do can leaders listening who are, you know, having an aha moment saying, yeah, this, this makes sense. But what do you do next? Because we we've, we've all been in organizations that have been talking about the E and I stuff, and we go to inclusion workshops, and we we have these conversations, and I think more and more people are are uh, accepting that this is important and necessary, but we haven't really gotten past the conversations in many organizations.
check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, the journey of becoming a truly remarkable leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue, what some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There is no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of your problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. So there's two things. One, I often work in terms of seeing the system and developing system site. What I often encourage leaders to do is retell their story of success because you got to get it in your bones and understand how you are also a product of the system. Now, what I mean by that is that we have a pervasive myth in this, in our society that hard work equals success. That's the equation, as if it's a like a linear correlation. The more hard work you put in, the more success you experience. That's what all, like that myth is powerful. What I am saying is the actual equation is hard work plus system support equals success. So that yes, hard work is important. I'm not trying to take away from that, but there is a second variable of system support that equals success. And when somebody is not experiencing success, it doesn't mean they're not working hard. It often means they don't have the system support underneath them. Um, I tell a rather long story in the introduction of the book of like my parents' immigration story that illustrates this idea. But the shorter version is actually the fact that I wrote the book and I've started my own business. I tried to start my own business multiple times when I was single and it was virtually impossible because I couldn't afford health insurance and I couldn't make enough money to live and to like convert from like being in the red to being in the black. When I got married um, at the age of 41, I was able to go on my husband's health insurance and his income, even though he's a firefighter and paramedic, he is not wealthy, but it was just enough of a buffer for the three months that I needed to make this profitable. My ability to get married has zero correlation to my business acumen. And yet that was a substantial transformative variable that allowed me to be successful in starting a business. Similarly, when I wrote the book during the uh, first year of the pandemic, I can't even believe we're saying that, but yes, it's the first year of the pandemic. I was able to do that because I don't have children. So I wasn't homeschooling anybody. And because my husband is willing to pick up all of the errands and do all of the housework while I was writing. Again, my ability to like marry a guy who's that great, zero correlation to my writing chops. The fact that I've chosen to be child-free shouldn't have to be a choice that women make in order to pursue their dreams. I chose to be child-free for reasons that have nothing to do with that, but nevertheless, that has contributed to my success. And so when I tell 
um, leaders, I was like, talk about your successes in a way that unmasks the system for others so that they can begin to see the system variables as well. Because when we do that, we can start to have a deeper conversation about are those variables in place for other people? It doesn't mean I didn't work hard. I worked like hell on that book and on starting my own business. But I know that there were certain system factors too. And if I can be honest about that as a woman, then that gives other women the chance to set their life up for success. And it also stops gaslighting them into thinking that you can be like a mompreneur and do it all and have like eight arms and three heads and somehow <laughs> still be like a well-balanced individual, which you can't. You know? Yeah, yeah. We all have limited energy and time, yeah. and we have to make choices, right? And so, yeah, I love that, and I love your acknowledgement of you know that you married a great guy who's who's been so supportive, and and just like uh, my wife and I both work, we're both professors, um, and we try to equally support each other and to and to manage the childcare and the home uh, uh, care and and errands and all those sorts of things, um, and. I, I'm just so grateful that I have a wife that's been so supportive of me over time. And I hope that, you know, I've been as supportive for her as she has been for me. And the reality is we all make these choices and we have all, we all have different priorities um, and we can't do it all. We can't be all things to all people all the time. So, so that is a really healthy recognition. Uh, I'm glad you, you focused on that as well. Um, and, and again, it, it just, it brings to the table, this idea, this, this under, this better understanding that, our context, our circumstances are going to influence our access and the overall fairness of the systems mm -hmm. under which we're trying to, to find success. Um, and so let's talk a little bit more about, as we spend the rest of our time uh, here uh, together today, let's talk a little bit more about specific things that leaders can start doing right now today uh, to help their people have systems vision, to help their people better understand uh, the, the equity component so that we can start making a difference and improve the lives, our, our lives, the lives of our teams and our coworkers uh, so that everyone has a chance to thrive. Yeah, so the first thing is tell your story with that sort of frame, right? Like with a, with a systems frame to it. Um, the second part is to get really clear about what are the observable behaviors you want to see in the organization or what are the equitable outcomes, right? Do you want to create an expense system where anybody, regardless of their life circumstances, can expense what they need in order to like get a job done? Do you want to, um, you know, if you want any more inclusive culture, what exactly does that mean? What are the behaviors you wanna see? Because one of the things that's really important to recognize is that this is not about propaganda or getting everybody to think a certain way. Um, what this is about is asking for specific behaviors that foster an inclusive and equitable culture, right? So we have to get it down to the level of behavioral intervention and behavior change, not about, um, you know, convincing everyone they have to believe certain things. Like that's one, that's not scalable. Two, I think that's unethical because the D and DEI is for diversity. People are allowed to believe what they wanna believe, but we have to say that in this organization, here is the line for what sort of behavior is acceptable. And we need to raise that line from like where it is now, which is like, so long as you don't steal and you get results, you're fine, to no, it is unacceptable to use dehumanizing language 
It is unacceptable to spread disinformation. It is unacceptable to use your power in an abusive or exploitative way. And so we want to see people who use power in liberatory ways that are about connecting and healing and repairing and empowering others. We want to see people who make policies that allow for equitable access to opportunities so that somebody shouldn't have to choose between getting a promotion and, you know, being able to be a mom, you know, that like we want to ensure that like there's not a culture of overwork that meetings are between nine and five and not you know, off hours and that only people who have the ability to work off hours are there for the people who succeeded your company. Those are like the level of tactical engagements that we need to get to that are very concrete and specific in order to create a more equitable culture. I really like that. And again, good intentions isn't enough. So um, we, we, need to, we need to work towards better understanding uh, foster self-reflection. We need to strive for a good intention, certainly, but that's not enough. Like we can't end there. We have to actually start doing specific things to embed uh, yeah. this, this fairness and, and the equity throughout the system, throughout the, the policy practices, procedures, the norms, the values of the organization. Uh, and there are simple things that we can start doing right now, like that can happen today um, to start making that difference. If we're just thoughtful about it, if we're proactive about that, we're willing to challenge our assumptions a little bit. Uh, and so let's get past the conversations, let's get past good intentions and let's get into practice so that we have behavior change, like you said. And it's not about thought policing. I mean, people can have their own attitudes about a whole range of things and have different mm -hmm. perspectives. It's not about thought policing, it's about behaviors. It's about how we interact with each other. And I don't have the right, I have the right to think whatever I want to think, but I don't have the right to treat people uh, mm -hmm. in dismissive, undermining ways. I don't have the right to, uh, and, and we're not even talking about necessarily blatant, uh, overt discrimination, but I don't have the right to make someone feel unwelcome, unwanted, mm -hmm. um, undermined, or insignificant. I just don't. And so we need to reinforce that. We need to call out those behaviors when they happen and help coach people towards better behaviors. Uh, and if yeah. we can start doing that, we're going to have more healthy organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like, um, you know, we want to, we want to make it so that it, what we're really doing is how can we design the system to be kind so that the kindness is only, isn't only left to individual effort. And really where that's coming from is from behavioral economics. So they found that in countries where when you get a driver's license, you're automatically opted in to be an organ donor, they have organ donation rates of like in the 90s. In countries where that's not an option, their organ donation rates are in like, like the 10 or 20th percentiles. So it's the same thing. Like you can choose not to at any point. You can opt out even if you've automatically been opted in. Um, but how do we create organizations where people are automatically opted in to engaging in an inclusive and equitable way, and they have to take monumental effort to opt out. Right now we have a system where the default is actually to be pretty terrible to one another. And we need to exert monumental effort to be inclusive and to be kind to one another. And so what I wanna do, what I my, this book is saying is to flip that and say, how do we design it so it's actually easy to engage in the kind behaviors and it is actually hard to be terrible to one another. Manol, it has been a real pleasure talking, exploring your book, the concepts, and, and really talking about tactical, specific things that we can start to do to improve 
the lives of those around us and improve the health of our organization. Um, before we wrap up, I just want to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your work, where they can find your book, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Sure. So I am the only minimal pie on the internet, so you can find me. <laughs> um, I'm very active on LinkedIn, but you can check out my company at brevityandwit.com. You can also learn more about the book at theequitybook.com where it links. Um, it is available wherever books are sold. It's available on Amazon, bookshop.org, Barnes and Nobles. So you can also go there and search for it. But theequitybook.com not only has links for the books, it has a couple, it has an equity toolkit. It has my bookshelf with other books that I recommend and other resources. And you can sign up for our newsletter through either of those two sites. And we send out a newsletter every two weeks with really great tips for designing a more equitable world. So if you're interested in this topic, I would highly recommend that. A final word about equity is, well, I'll, I'll say this. I am aware that life is unfair. And so to talk about fairness in an unfair world can seem ironic. But the reason I do it is because I think that the desire for fairness is written in the DNA of all human beings. And when we tap into that, we tap into our humanity. It is like the desire for beauty or truth or creativity. It is the thing that separates us from animals. And so therefore, even in an unfair world, the pursuit of equity is what will allow you to know the true depths of your own humanity. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Minnell can do for you, check out her book. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.